Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of the Growth Adventure Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Appel. Uh, excited to be joined today by the co-founder and CEO of Market Wagon, Nick Carter. Nick, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, we are going to get a chance later on the podcast to t- talk more about Market Wagon itself. But just to dive right in, since this podcast is based around entrepreneurs and the entrepreneur's journey, I think it's fair to say, based on some previous conversations you and I have had, that Market Wagon is absolutely a mission and passion-focused entity. And I'm just curious, from from your your background, at what point did you say, man, I got to do this? I got to do Market Wagon? I was in my late 20s, probably. Well, Market Wagon specifically came about when I was 34. I'll turn 40 uh, next year. So yeah, but kind of a quick version. Left the family farm when I was 18, dropped out of college, became a tech startup entrepreneur, had a couple of successes there. And then in my late 20s, early 30s, was like, hmm, maybe I can take this entrepreneurial passion and go you know, bring it to bear on, on the farming world. I realized that I kind of still had a love and a passion for farming. And that led me through a couple of other startups that were not as successful. And then the aha moment came when it's like, Nick, uh, you're not a food manufacturer. You're not a a, a CPG brand manufacturer. You're a tech guy. So take technology and then take that and put it into farming. And that's what Market Wagon. Awesome. Well, not to bury the lead since you did a great job of teeing up this next question, but could you just kind of give an idea about the platform of Market Wagon? And then at the end, we'll circle back about the the company itself. Yeah. So it's an online farmer's market. Uh, The idea was we wanted to enable food producers to thrive in their local and regional markets. That's our mission statement. Um, I've gotten pretty good at rattling it off. And in order to do that, they need to be able to get access to the marketplace. You know, for our family farm, we grow, my dad and I raise pastured pork and beef, but we can't sell it. You know, we're not going to get Walmart to put our stuff on their shelves. And we are kind of limited in terms of how many farmers markets we can attend. So in order to get access to the customer base, e-commerce is just this, you know, treasure trove of opportunity. But e-commerce is really hard to do for small independent, especially food producers. You can't drop ship a ribeye, right? That's not going through the UPS store. So we built the e-commerce platform, online farmers market, Consumers can connect directly with the people that they're buying their food from. Um, you can find our farm as many and, and then like 2,000 others. And then we build fulfillment centers. So we do the logistics as well. So the delivery comes through Market Wagon and we handle that sort of aggregation. And that's actually where most of the tech is. These days, to start an e-commerce website, I'm not going to say it's easy, but there's a lot of tools out there to do add to cart, check out, and run a credit card. That's not like rocket science. But when you've got... 200 farmers ranging from eggs and beef to milk and then lettuce and then somebody's baking bread and it all has to get into insulated totes and stay cold and make it to a customer's doorstep. That's some fun software, right? And so we built all the logistics systems on the back end so that we can scalably deliver all of this food to consumers' doorsteps. Many of our listeners listen to other podcasts that are sponsored by uh, many companies, some of which arrive with Shopify. So yes, you're, you're spot on about <laughs> setting up an e-commerce site. They don't sponsor this podcast, by the way, but if they're listening, they're welcome to. <laughs> yet. <laughs> yet. Yet, exactly. <laughs> I do want to get a little bit, though, into the probably not stereotypical journey of somebody who grew up in farm and ag and ended up in technology. I mean, I think Most people who grew up, like myself, in urban areas don't really have an appreciation for the overall farm and ag economy. Maybe just kind of as a level set for our listeners, could you kind of talk about 
what that landscape looks like, either in Indiana or more broadly, and, and kind of also kind of the two channels of industrial farm ag versus value add farm ag, which I, I, I know is the space that you're most passionate about. Yeah, and, and one leads into the other. So I know we've, we've gone on and on about this, Andrew, so I'm going to try and keep this as, as succinct as possible. But the journey, I mean, when I say I left the farm when I was 18, that is, uh, that's just a statistic. I, I am just a walking stereotype of my generation of farmers because every year, according to the USDA, the average age of a farmer in the U.S. goes up by almost a year. So if you're decent at math and statistics, that means there's not new people coming into this industry. And the next generation, you know, farming is really the last profession that gets handed down from generation to generation. There may be people who are listening to your podcast whose last name is Taylor, but they probably don't make their living cutting fabric and making suits. So farming is the last profession that way. And it's really, it's kind of coming to an abrupt halt in our generation. The reasons are, they're, they're deep and wide. What I, I observed was just the commoditization of agriculture, that corn and soy and cheap grains that then made cheap feed grains to make cheap proteins in chicken, beef, and pork. Eventually, the race to the bottom means that the only way, the race to the bottom of the pricing, by the way, means the only way to make money is to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so if you needed to make enough income for your son or daughter, who is who's now coming of age and wants to make their own career, to become a farmer and also make their own money, well, then you just need to double the size of your farm. That's simple. And you can't only do that so many times. And so we saw through a lot of economic forces, both global as well as our own national policies on, on farming, we saw a consolidation, boom and bust consolidation cycle through the 70s and 80s and, and into the 90s with agriculture, which meant that those who stayed farming became monstrously large or you didn't. And by the way, I should mention that was actually intentional. That was a motto of the USDA director, Earl Butts, during the Nixon era was get big or get out. Look, this is the direction we're heading. We're going toward industrial efficiency. This is how we're going to feed the world. So get big or get out. Statistically speaking, most people actually got out. So I was a statistic, born in 83 and part of that part of that generation of farming. But value add farming is today kind of that in between. The the people who who said, I'm not gonna get big, I'm not gonna grow four, five, six, ten, twenty thousand acres of corn and soybeans in the Midwest, or build massive barns and put thousands and thousands of head of hogs under one roof and feed them that cheap corn that came from the next door farm. But I'm not just going to go get a factory job. I'm not going to give up on this. The only way to do that is to go, is to get outside of the traditional commodity, you know, supply chain and go direct to consumer. That's, that's what we do. So you either, you go direct to consumer, you create a value added good. And instead of creating just Heads of hogs, for example, what that's what we did when I was a kid and we were paid just to truck them to the, the nearby processing plant in Logansport that turned it into an actual consumer good. Well, today, no, we contract to a, a small butcher. We raise the pork, but we are intentional about how they're raised. And then we have them butchered under inspection. We pay a custom processing fee for that. We put that merchandise into a freezer that we store and then we go and find the customers who want to buy that pork. That's a wholly different process. And we get to maintain all of the margin from the retail all the way down the value chain. And we can command a little higher price. And there's a whole lot more margin per acre, right? We're, we're creating a different kind of income profile for the farm. 
Well, that answer was chock-a-block full of economist lingo. So we're, we're going we're gonna to go deep into this for a minute. So the first thing that struck me about your response was it's kind of a classic push-pull scenario where you on the producer side were passionate about continuing doing the thing that your family was good at doing for years, but that requires mm-hmm. a consumer, right? And so on the consumer side, they're very much, you know, if you you look back, probably long-term farmers markets were probably the first consumer pull, right? So you had people who were interested in buying local, and then it spread mm-hmm. to more of an independent food scene that was interested in producing food that was sourced locally. So you, you now have people who probably have never stepped foot on a farm in their life, interested and passionate, as well as a group of farmers who are interested in providing the goods. I, I mean, so you've got that push-pull marketplace, but your, your very last thing there, I think, touched on the thing that makes it so appealing both for consumers, because yes, people are willing to pay a premium, but it's not like you're charging two or three X of what they could go to your local big box store to buy. However, from the producer side, you're able, as you said, when you say hold the value chain, basically what you're saying is the producer is earning more per relative unit of output than you would have otherwise if you were part of the more traditional going to any sort of a big box chain. Yes, at some point, somebody produced that good. However, it's probably pennies on the dollar to what a local producer such as yourself or other similar family farms are able to extract from the market. Is that accurate? Exactly. The other word I use was commoditization. I mean, the simple way to understand a commodity is that it's a marketplace where all of goods are equal. Uh, paper, right? And I can get paper wherever. And, and so referencing Dunder Mifflin, if anybody's an office fan, right? It, and so what we, we did in kind of the post-war era, really, it was the boomer era, the 50s and 60s, consumers in the U.S. started to believe that a calorie was a calorie. A food unit was just, it's all the same. And that, that goes all the way down into the, the ingredients into it. So I, I really, once something is a commodity, then the only selling proposition you have is can you make it cheaper? or more convenient, but cheaper. It's just, that's what was winning at grocery for a whole generation or more. And what you're describing here, this, this emergence of farmer's markets in the nineties, and then they really exploded in the, in the early part of this century was a lot of consumers realizing, wait a second, not all food is equal. And there's definitely a differential in the quality of the food. So this is not a commodity. Food is not a commodity. And, and there's, there are appreciable differences in how it's produced and what goes into it. And that change, that transformation had to take place with the consumers before, you know, anything that I've described or that I brought about on our own farm or, or on Market Wagon could have taken place. We are definitely benefiting from that trend in the marketplace. So before we switch over to the entrepreneurship and the passion element, because I've, I've got some questions I want to follow up on there, but let's talk about the technology for a second. And it's not just the Market Wagon platform itself, right? So your platform is only successful to the extent that producers have access to technology. Have you seen just in your journey from leaving the farm at age 18 to where you are today, that technology infrastructure changing in a way that allows producers to engage with the platform? Yeah. I mean, I don't know all the things you have in mind. I mean, there are simple things that a lot of times we as urban dwellers overlook, like access to the internet, you know, rural broadband, is somewhat important if you're going to participate in the e-commerce marketplace. And then just the real-time capability of that, you too, even just having it in your pocket. That's exactly where I was going in that, you know, I think, you know, while 
the span of time is all relatively condensed. I think for people who are in any sort of an urban center, we take for granted access to broadband. We Even if it was slow 56K dial-up way back in the day or you know, even just the emergence of smartphones, like we, some form of access to broadband and or internet connection is just something that it's a basic utility, right? But, and you spoke on it there that, you know, rural broadband is sorely lagging. But if you just look at the growth of social media as one of the big inflection points was just when, you know, cellular technology was more broadly available in rural areas. I guess I was going down the road of, have you noticed an uptick in the use of technology from your producers as that sort of access has spread? I think I probably couldn't say that I have because by the time I entered the scene, if you will, seven, eight years ago, rural broadband and, and, and cellular broadband was pretty well accessible. But I can tell you, I mean, I, I remember being a kid on our farm. And one of the things that we needed was we needed real-time access to like commodity prices because we were, we were growing commodities when I was a kid. We had a little satellite dish. We didn't have satellite TV, okay? I had what I always jokingly refer to as Amish cable. We had the little antenna thing. You know, we had like four channels. But we still had a satellite dish, and it was to take a, a feed of real-time prices from the Chicago Board of Trade so we could know what a bushel of corn was trading for that day. That was the first thing we invested in as a, as a farm beyond getting to, you know, cable TV. <laughs> oh, that is... Yeah, that is interesting and something I certainly cannot relate to as an urban dweller. But back to kind of the the passion, the entrepreneurship side. So since you you self-disclosed your age at the beginning of this podcast, I will label you as a millennial. I'm just curious, from your interactions either with your peers as you're kind of running your own farm and or your partners as you're running the platform, are you noticing any sort of shift in that demographic aging that you referenced earlier, that every year the average age goes up. Are you seeing more people following your path and kind of reclaiming the thing that you grew up passionate about, got disenchanted with and left? Yeah, that is the most amazing part of this whole story. Very few people, and I realize how fortunate I am, very few people get to recognize kind of a global problem in the world that impacts them personally, set out to change it, and then actually have the, the experience of watching it happen. So I just want to acknowledge how blessed I am that, that this is just not a, a common experience to the human um, experience. But I have watched because of Market Wagon and also because of the, the, the overall consumer trends that are now allowing farmers to create value-added goods on their farm and internet marketplace, that other people in my generation who would have just been a part of this statistic have figured out how to stay on the farm. And that to describe the feeling that that gives me is pretty difficult to put into words, but it's, it's amazing. And, it, and it's very simple to understand. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a, a young son saying, okay, dad, well, you make your living on 2000 acres. I can't go get my 2000. They're not making more dirt, but can I take 10 over there on the corner and grow cucumbers or melons or specialty crops? Or can I, can I lease just 50 acres from you and fence it in and put, put, uh, you know, pasture poultry and, and lamb rotation in there and, and go build an endeavor that way. And it's happening and it's happening all across the country. And I know the people that are impacted by it and it's, it's phenomenal. And market wagon, I do not want to in any way 
convey a hero complex. We are just one piece. It's an important piece. But these guys are, are building their markets in a very diversified way, which I encourage. We don't want Market Wagon to become the next Chicago Board of Trade, that, that, which is the unified single monolithic place that you can go and sell uh, or gain a price at least for commodity grains or livestock. Because I can see how how damaging that is for a farm enterprise. You can't have one customer. Anybody who's in business knows how risky it is if you only have one buyer. And Market Wagon shouldn't put, should not imperil our producers the same way. So we love the fact that the farmers we're working with have Market Wagon has a channel to go direct to consumer um, online. They're at farmers markets though. They have their own on-farm stands or they have their own retail outlets. They're wholesaling to chefs and restaurants. And so they have that diversification that makes them a very vibrant and resilient business. And it's not just us. We, we are playing an important role in this. And I'm just so happy to be in the role that we're in and being able to serve this community the way that we do. And yet in no way imagine that, you know, we're it. But we, we're just, we're filling the role that needs to be filled in one, one aspect. Well, that's, I guess, encouraging to hear that it's almost like a virtuous entrepreneurial cycle that all industries have, you know, go up, go down, go back up and reinvent themselves. And it sounds like, this giant industry that is invisible to most consumers is going through a process of, of reinvention and uh, reinvigoration on that. And I know this is in danger of being like a soapbox question, but from your perspective, and I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of all, all, all farm producers around the country, but from, from Nick Carter's perspective, what would you want consumers to think about when they walk into a grocery store? <laughs> oh, there's a lot of things. Let me narrow that down. I would want people to think about the people. What is it? What do you think it looks like to produce lettuce for, you know, pennies on the pound? What kind of use of the land do you think that that requires? What kind of labor does that require? Who are the people behind, you know, the 99 cent gallon of milk? What does that look like? You know, where are your dollars going? And 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 who is having to, to make that, right? Because... When it comes down to it, if the lettuce makes you sick, and it, it will, <laughs> I mean, the E. coli outbreaks on lettuce are, are becoming more and more common. Who can you blame? Like there's, there's, there's no relationship you have to the food producer. So I guess what I'm getting at is think about food as a community and, and think about where you're getting it from. There's only a few things we still spend money on where we actually can understand where we got it from. It's like a haircut. You're going to know where you got that from. <laughs> and maybe table service food. You, and you should think about, you know, your servers and treat them well. But when we go buy commodity goods, uh, it's become a very dehumanized system. So just try and imagine where this was coming from and who cared enough to put healthy food on, on your plate. And at the supermarket, oftentimes it's nobody did care enough. You know, they're, they're producing the cheapest thing they possibly can for you. And then you might just want to imagine that a little further what kind of decisions might they make? Well, thank you. And uh, this is a, a dangerous speculative statement I'm going to make, but we are recording this in a time where everybody is experiencing inflation and food is probably one of the most visible and impactful items beyond gas that you know everybody experiences daily and or weekly. My, my dangerously speculative proposition would be to the extent that you take the time to find and or source your food locally, it is probably less susceptible to price increases because 
the number of hands that touch that product between the time it is produced to the time it is consumed is drastically reduced. And while inputs are still going to be going up, the multiplier effect is less. Is that a reasonable proposition? It is. Uh, it's less susceptible for sure for a lot of reasons. Global trade has very little impact on it. Like you said, less hands are touching it, less food miles as people like to talk about. And we, we've always still had the, you know, some people will say, well, local food, it's a little bit more expensive. That gap is closing. The, the, the decision to invest a little bit more of your grocery budget into knowing where your food comes from is getting easier and easier because the gap is closing uh, for the reasons that you described. Thank you. And again, I apologize to our listeners. Uh, you have officially been listening to two economist geeks geeking out on inputs and outputs. So uh, I'm going I'm to pivot now to more the family side. So you have referenced that this is a family operation. So could you maybe talk about who all you have the privilege of, of working with and maybe then kind of transition to obviously you grew up in a farm you referenced your father earlier you referenced that you still have the ability and opportunity to work with them but you also have kids of your own so could you maybe kind of talk about that that whole cycle and and how that dynamic plays out yeah and i should clarify that that not to confuse the two the farming is a family operation market wagon is a venture-backed startup uh, that is mission driven to support family farms like ours and thousands of others but so the, the farming and food production is a, yeah, it's a family operation. I grew up on a, on a farm that was mainly corn and soy. Today, dad is fencing in what, what had been grain fields. Uh, we're fencing it in and planting permanent pasture and raising more and more pasture-raised uh, livestock. So that's actually where it began. I uh, was not farming for about 20 years of my life, you know, after I left the, left the farm. And then I started getting back involved with dad by creating a market. Direct marketing is beef, and then we created Market Wagon, and then selling that beef and pork on Market Wagon. And as I grew that market, he's had to. It's really funny working with your with your own dad. He's like, "Well, I'm, I'm going to have to make more pasture. You're you're selling too much beef. Like that's kind of the point, Dad. Uh, go get the fences built." And so we've been able to build that together, uh, which is fun. He raises the beef, I market the beef. Five years ago, we do have with three kids. Five years ago, roughly, my wife kind of looked at me and said, "You know, she's a." grew up in Carmel, suburbanite. She said, um, whatever you had growing up, I don't know how to reproduce that in, in the suburbs. So let's see if we can buy some land and create a farm. It was her idea, not mine. And so we did. We bought 20 acres. It's actually an Indianapolis address. And we can't raise beef and pork here in the city limits. There's zoning issues with that. But we have uh, laying hens. We have goats. And we raise a lot of produce. And the kids are directly involved in that. And it's a huge part of their their education and, and growing up, right? I mean, they are principally responsible for the well-being of 400 chickens and 22 goats. I may go and check on those animals once or twice a week. Daily chores, daily checks, daily feeding and watering. There is a 12-year-old and two 10-year-olds who are responsible for all of that operation. And they do it. They do it well. It's huge. Do they also clean up their own rooms? No, isn't that amazing? They can't get their homework done on time, and their rooms look dirtier than the barn. So uh, I, I guess that speaks to passion, right? I'm, you clearly have infused the passion in the next generation. So we, uh, yeah, we're going to come back to both where people can learn more about your 
own farm as well as most specifically Market Wagon. But before we get there, uh, we're going to pivot to the lightning round. So we've got uh, four questions here. There are no wrong answers, only long answers. So what would we find on Nick Carter's car radio? NPR, classic rock, and country music. The second question is, what would we find on your bedside table or e-reader? Uh, right now, there's two books on my nightstand. One is called Deep Discipleship, and the other one is Pilgrim's Progress. Thank you. All right, so next question. There are no wrong answers, and nobody's going to judge you. Cats or dogs? Dogs. There Excellent. is a wrong answer to that. Cats is the wrong answer to that question. <laughs> if I am principally responsible for keeping it alive, I, I, I have seen the listenership statistics. We have cat fans here who listen to this, so my apologies. We love cats, too. That last question, and uh, this is a bit more serious. What is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? Find a mentor who's older than you. The life experience cannot be replaced with knowledge. So just sit down with somebody who's a whole generation beyond you on a regular basis. Let them know what's going on in your life and let them filter it through what they have learned by being further ahead of you. And I guess just to clarify, does that mentor need to be somebody who's in the same industry or just somebody who's passionate about helping other people? My mentor is a retired doctor. And I think it was probably in the last five to 10 years of his career that he even got to send or receive an email. I mean, the, the concept that his experience is irrelevant could be easily portrayed, but it's invaluable to, to talk to somebody with that level of insight. Before we close, I do want to make sure that our listeners have an opportunity to learn more about where they might be able to find your own personal farms produce, and most importantly, learn more about Market Wagon, both where they could find information on the web, as well as if they were a consumer, what they could expect. So our farm is pretty simple. We're on 86th and Sargent Road in Indianapolis. It's a little farm stand honor system, self-service, right off the road. Right now, all there is is eggs. Uh, we'll have some greenhouse crops coming off. Because uh, as we're recording this, it's going into wintertime. So our, our summertime produce is gone, and we've got a greenhouse where we'll be harvesting here in a few weeks. Market Wagon is pretty easy. Marketwagon.com. We're recording this in Indianapolis, but uh, and that's where I started the company. We now have fulfillment centers and online farmers markets in 32 cities around the Midwest and South. And if somebody's listening to this out of the archives a few years from now, then Lord willing, we'll also be coast to coast. So Put in your zip code and you'll find out what farmers are participating in your local area and um, what delivery looks like for your area. And I'm sure we service you. Awesome. Well, thank you. And uh, I would encourage all of our listeners to check it out. Uh, if you are a farmer's market regular like myself, uh, add it to the rotation. It doesn't have to be an either or proposition. And I will just close by saying Nick Carter, co-founder and CEO of Market Wagon. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and I wish you the best. Thanks so much.